Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Okay, if you turn in your Bible to Ruth, as we continue, and um, Ruth chapter 2, as we um, continue in this wonderful book here of Ruth, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Where would we be without the Word, the Word of God. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and being the Word that was made flesh, that we could see you. And now, Lord, as we open your Word, may we see the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Okay, we've already been in Ruth. In our last study, you know, chapter two here, in our last, but we have a background. Our last study, we saw Ruth returned home after that wonderful day in the fields in the fields of Boaz there. And, you know, there was just an excitement with Ruth as she came home that night. She was loaded with both the grain that she had weaned there and collected and and the parched corn. You remember she had that corn from that wonderful lunch that she had with Boaz, and she she brought some home to Naomi and says, you know, look, Naomi, look what I brought home for you. And so this time in Ruth for Naomi and Ruth was really, really a great time. But it was really a hard time for both of them because they were reduced to abject poverty at Naomi and Ruth. They had each other, but more importantly, they had the Lord. But it was during this hard time in their lives that they were just getting to know each other better and better. But more importantly, during this hard time here in their lives, they were just getting to know the Lord better and better. So you could look back on this, they could look back on this time, and and if we look at it, you could say, you know, for Naomi and Ruth, this was really the worst time of their lives. They just hit the bottom. But for Naomi and Ruth, this is the best time of their lives. Sort of like the start of a marriage. You know, it's not uncommon for the start of a marriage to be the worst time and the best time. But they were stressed during that time. But under the stress, there was a wonderful refinement that was taking place. And, and they were learning as they were going along in this path here just how precious the Lord was to them. And that was wonderful. But there's something wonderful and you know happening with Naomi. I mean, there's a real change that's happening here with Naomi. I mean, I know the book's called Ruth, and that's great. But what's happening to Naomi is so wonderful. We could call the book Naomi because there's such a wonderful change that's happening here with Naomi. And the great thing about this change is that when we look at it, we can identify with it. We can identify with it. We can learn from it. We can apply it to ourselves. And it's just wonderful. So in order to see this change that happened to Naomi, we got to really focus now, remind ourselves again where she came from, her starting point, 
And that brings us back, all the way back to chapter 1, and make sure to look at chapter 1. When you turn back from Bethlehem, look at those verses there. Chapter 1, verse 19. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? Well, she'd be good to lead a praise worship team, wouldn't she? (laughs) We remember how the word Naomi it means pleasantness. It means pleasantness. And we see that Naomi was, here, she's really bitter. I mean, this is, this, she's very angry at God. And she says to her fellow Jews in Bethlehem that she was so angry with God that she wanted to be called Mara, which means bitterness. Bitter. You know? and, and she accused God of dealing very bitterly with her and of stripping her of everything that she had. It's all God's fault. She said, and God is testifying against me. Yes, I've got sin, but all I hear from God is is about my sins. And she accused God of afflicting her. This was a very terrible place for Naomi in her life. She was just full of cursing. But when we look at Naomi in the picture of her here in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, we see a Naomi in such bad shape. But when we look at her now, look over into Ruth 2 in verse 19, and look at her now. When she's saying words like, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And look her in verse 20 when she said, blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living to the dead. Speaking of Boaz. So, you know, you look at chapter 1, you see Naomi, you look here at chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, you say, what happened? How did this happen to Naomi that she went? From being full of cursing to being full of blessing. Blessed, blessed, blessed. She says, what's going on? How this happened to her? And there were two great changes that happened in Naomi that brought her to this, to this place. These were the changes. These were the two great changes that happened to Naomi that started her down the road of being blessed herself and of becoming a blessing to others, which is what we want to be in life. We want to be blessed. We want to be a blessing to others. And those two great changes that happened to Naomi, just they, they are the two first beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. They're foundational for anyone to be a blessed by God and to become a blessing. So if you like, turn to that. Keep your place in Ruth because you don't ever want to lose where Ruth is. It's very hard to find again. But you turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is It's very important when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. We come to these Beatitudes. We've got to see the setting. We've got to see verse 1. The first verse, we see the Lord Jesus Christ And it says, he saw multitudes. And when he saw multitudes, he became activated. He flew into an action mode. See, these words in verse 1 are very significant when it says, and seeing the multitudes, because that's the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. 
These words, seeing the multitudes, are telling us that something tremendous happened inside the Lord Jesus Christ by seeing the multitudes. It rocked him within. Because what the Lord Jesus Christ saw, what did he see when he saw the multitudes in verse 1? That's the question. Because he experienced a deep pain, a burning pain inside in seeing the multitudes because of what he saw. What did he see that caused so much pain in verse 1 that from seeing the multitudes? What he saw is described in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. In Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, it's God seeing the multitudes which he calls my people. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will reject thee. Who said that? Who said that in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6? Who said my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge? Jehovah said that. Jehovah said, who is Jehovah? Jehovah's Jesus. Jehovah Jesus said that. So the same person who in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge is the one now who sees the multitude in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. See, the one who said in Hosea 4 6, my people now sees his people in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. The one who said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge in Hosea 4, 6, now sees his people in Matthew 5, 1 being destroyed for lack of knowledge. And there's a pain in him, a pain of seeing now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, his people destroyed for lack of knowledge, and it's almost too great to bear. So when he sees the multitude, he sees the people being destroyed, and the Hebrew word for destroyed is very interesting. It's dama for the Hebrew word for destroyed, which comes from alam, which means to have a tongue that can't speak. So it's very unusual to think of Jewish people like that, but that's sometimes, that's why that word's not used very much. But anyway, it means to have a tongue that can't speak, not able to speak. It has the, it, it has the meaning, alam, dama alam, it has the meaning of standing before the judge and not being able to speak to be in a state of utter shock and amazement. You know, we talked, the summer blitz, as you know, started this week. One of our summer blitz packets was left on the door of a man named Chaim in Albany, New York. And, and I've been on the phone, talked to him. We've established a relationship. So Chaim and I, we have some things in common. He and I are both the, uh, the grandsons of uh, Cantor's. And, um, of course, I have a name of Cantor. He didn't have one, but anyway, it doesn't matter. But anyway, and, 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 and uh, son of Orthodox, grandson of Orthodox Jews. And he and I both um, actually left Judaism. But that's where the commonality ends. Because here's what happened with him. When he was 15 years old, he was influenced by his uncle who turned to Christianity. And for 15 years, from when Chaim was 15 to 30, Chaim was an ardent missionary, as he told me. He even led, like a pastor, a Christian congregation. But at the age of 30, Chaim turned back to Judaism, and for 60 years now, since then, he has, he has given his life to fighting against the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I talked to him on the phone, he said, I read your book. Have you read my book? So I, so I ordered his book, ordered his book to understand him. I received the book. I've never seen a book like that before. That was unbelievable almost 200 pages of small print with every scripture that I ever would have used, 3,000 references. 
about the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses same argument, but not the argument, but to teach against the Lord Jesus Christ. And Haim Haim asked me, did you read my book? So I ordered his book. I just received his book. Like I said, his book is unbelievable. I've never seen a book like that before. Using all the same scriptures, but against the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he said, between 15 and 30, he said, I believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior. But there's one thing. Oh, the book's horrible. Don't order the book. Don't order the book. If you want the book, you can come to my house. It's about this much ashes in my fireplace. I'm not kidding. It's really, I mean, I looked and I said, I don't want to see this again. But in never mind. Um, though the, the, uh, for Chaim, see, there's one thing that he never addressed in his book, and it's two words. And, and, and for Chaim, those two words represent the Himalayas that Chaim never came. He came to the base camp in Tibet of the Himalayas, but he never crossed the Himalayas because he never embraced those two words as a Christian. Chaim never made it over the Himalayas. And you know what those two words are? They're very simple. I say them all the time. Jehovah Jesus. Those are the two words. Jehovah Jesus. Jehovah is Jesus. See, Chaim has made every argument possible to fight against Jesus. And it's a stunning work and, 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 it, and it's, it stands as the most comprehensive work that I've ever seen against the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just one problem. There's no address of Jehovah Jesus. There's no address of Jesus is Jehovah. Chaim argues in his book, he keeps saying, this was done before Jesus. This was done before Jesus. Just one problem. Jehovah Jesus, nothing was done before Jehovah Jesus. Because John 1.1 says, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was Jehovah. In the beginning was Jehovah Jesus. And the problem for the lost is that if they don't repent, is that there's a problem for the lost that the hospice cannot solve. There's a problem for the lost that the hospice coming cannot solve. There's a problem for the lost that Ativan for anxiety can't solve. There's a problem for the lost that morphine and the respiratory suppression that it induces can't solve. There's a problem for the lost that California SB 128 end of life law, which will go into effect on June 9th, can't solve. There's one problem for the lost that a peaceful transition from a deep sleep into death cannot solve. And that problem is what happens to the lost after that sleep? Because that problem is described in Daniel 12 too. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And the problem for the lost is called in Daniel 12 too, sleep in the dust of the earth and awake. And to awake for the lost is to cry out for death. Where's death? In Revelation 9, 6, describes this. It says, and in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. And they shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. Death is going to run away from them. And the problem for the lost is to cry out for death and to see death just run away. And the problem for the lost is to cry out for morphine and to see morphine run away and to, and to cry out for California's SB 120 end of, end of life law and to see for assisted suicide. And that will run away because there is no resorting to SB 128 end of life law. For the lost, there is simply Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men once to die 
after this judgment. And then it will be for the lost to stand before Jehovah Jesus as the ultimate judge. And there's nothing that any lost person can do to avoid standing before Jehovah Jesus to be judged. When the lost seek for death, to avoid the judgment, death's going to run away. When they seek for morphine, morphine's going to run away. When they seek for the end-of-life law, it's going to run away. Because, because no lost person can escape standing before Jehovah Jesus. It will be so shocking for the lost to see uh, Jesus, Jehovah's Jesus. As the judge, it will leave them in a state of dhamma. That's the destruction. Destruction from having the tongue that's not able to speak. The shock from seeing Jehovah Jesus as God the judge will make the tongue not able to say, Jesus, did you read my book? Did you you read my book detailing how you cannot be Jehovah? The one who said in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed, my people are dama. They're destroyed with a tongue that can't speak. That's the one in Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's the one in Matthew 5, 1. Same one, seeing the multitudes. He's now seeing his people who are being destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's the pain he had inside in Matthew 5, 1, from seeing the multitudes. The pain of seeing his people being destroyed for lack of knowledge. So what does he do? What does Jehovah Jesus do when he sees the multitude? He feels this indescribable pain of seeing Hosea 4, 6, his people destroyed for lack of knowledge, he does what you would expect. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. He gave them knowledge. He moves to take away the reason for the destruction of his people, the lack of knowledge. He opens his mouth. He gives them the knowledge they're lacking, and their knowledge they're lacking is not just interesting food for thought. It's vital knowledge. It's the knowledge that makes a difference between life and death. What he teaches here on the Sermon on the Mount is the knowledge that will give his people the escape they need from a dhamma tongue, a dhamma ruin, of being destroyed after a shocking judgment the tongue cannot speak in defense. It's going into an eternal state of hell. Seeing the multitudes, Jehovah Jesus immediately gets himself situated on the mountainside, gets his disciples around him. And now he says, okay, here's the first vital knowledge that you need. And this is verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The knowledge that's foundational, the knowledge that happened to Naomi, is very important to see in these poor in spirit, and it's very important to see in spirit. This is not a financial poverty. There's nothing wonderful about being financially poor. But this is a special poverty being called poor in spirit. And the person, he could be financially poor and not be poor in spirit. And a person could be financially wealthy and be poor in spirit. And Naomi had come to a point where she was poor in spirit. And the best way to understand this, what does it mean to be poor in spirit, is to see the opposite of it. Rich in spirit, which is what we see in Revelation 3. In Revelation 3.17 is the opposite of being poor in spirit because it says, because thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes saw that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. What we see with Naomi was that she's not saying that she has need of nothing. When she said, I went away full and I came back empty, that was gracious of God. God graciously reduced Naomi down to a condition and Naomi submitted to her personal reduction by God. And now she's saying that she had one need and her one need was God. When a person says that, they're poor in spirit. Naomi was poor in spirit because to be poor in spirit, Naomi was saying, I'm poor and I need God to make me rich with riches that are more than material wealth. Being poor in spirit, Naomi was saying, I'm blind and I need God to guide me. Being poor in spirit, Naomi was saying, I need everything from God. Naomi had been stripped of the conceit. The conceit, which, what is conceit? Conceit is a self-inflicted wound of deception in thinking that we are something when we're nothing. But Naomi's bad spirit and what she said way back in chapter one, it was so terrible that she knew very strongly in herself that she came to know that she was wretched. When she saw that, she could, we read it. Naomi, you were bad. You know. But she was in her mind. And being poor in spirit, she was saying, boy, I'm wretched inside. You know, to say those things about God, that he did all those things to me, I need God to deliver me from myself. And when Naomi said about her, she could see that about herself, she said exactly, she's on the same page as Paul in Romans 7.18. Paul in Romans 7.18, for he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but to how to perform that which is good, I know not. I find not. That's the key to being poor in spirit. It's a recognition of how terrible we are on the inside. And no one is poor in spirit unless they see what Paul saw in Romans 7, 18. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But it's possible for a person to think that he's really something when reality is not. And the Bible calls this self-deception in Galatians 6.3. Galatians 6.3. For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Self-deception, like I said, is a self-inflicted wound of the spirit. It's possible to ignore our wretched condition and our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it takes an effort to resist the self-deception of thinking we're great when we're not. To be poor in spirit takes an effort to resist that. And this effort to resist the proud deception, it really reminds us of, uh, that we've got to keep remembering who we really are and what we are in and of ourselves. I'm thinking about when I was 15 years old and uh, I was such a wonderful son that they had to get me far away from the family as possible, so they sent me to Switzerland for high school. And I attended my first school uh, which I didn't really graduate from. I was kicked out. But anyways, that's a different story. But when I was 15, the first school I went to was called Monterosa Boarding School. It was in Montreux, Switzerland, which was right at the end of the Lake Geneva. And uh, the really great part about that school was that it was just a short walk from one of the most fabulous castles in Europe called Chateau de Chillon. Chateau de Chillon was just this very impressive castle right on the edge of the lake. Tall castle, and we could walk there. It wasn't really far. And as students, we, we all got the student museum cards so we could go in for free anytime. That was great. So whenever we had any free time, you know, we, we didn't go into the city. We went to the castle. 
And it was right there on this road, very important road that connected France with Italy, very, very key road that went to the St. Bernard Pass in the Alps. So that went into Italy. So that road was very important back in the days of the Romans, uh, guarded that road viciously. And so did Napoleon, because blocking that road, you could keep the enemies from entering into Italy. So it was an area that was just full of history of a lot of battles that took place on that road. And the castle was strategic and the castle is where the knights lived and their horses were kept. And and like I say, we just loved the students to go to this tall, multi-story castle. And, you know, and it was a museum. We'd read all about the battles and the knights and the lords there. And, and they had all the armory in there and everything. And the castle just stands there. It was built over a thousand years ago in the, in the year 1005. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Do you believe God created the earth? Do you believe God created you in his image? Then come celebrate Museum Day at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California on Saturday, November 4th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Museum Day is a Christian family festival event with life-size dinosaurs, games, rides, contest prizes, fair food, vendor booths, petting zoos, live animal encounters, and super science experiments for kids, along with world-renowned speakers Tom Cantor, Eric Hoven, David Reeves, Russ Miller, Kevin Conover, Dr. John Baumgartner, and more. Free admission to the museum and all speaking engagements for you and your family and entire church family are free. The Creation and Earth History Museum is located off of Highway 67 and Woodside Avenue in Santee next to the Santee Drive-In. So bring your family and friends on Saturday, November 4th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and strengthen your faith at Museum Day. For more information, call us at 619-599-1104 or creationsd.org, creationsd.org.